TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to the Bike Nerds Podcast. For you, the listeners of the Bike Nerds Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Kyle Wagonschutz, what have you been listening to on Audible? Well, I've been re-listening to a book that I've already listened to. It's called Darth Plagueis by James Luceno. It's a Star Wars book. Uh, but it's it's a really, really, really good book. And I had listened to it once before, and, I list- and it was so good that I wanted to listen to it again. Awesome. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash OAM. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash OAM for your free audiobook. Kyle. Yes, ma'am. This is episode 19. Wow. Can 19. you believe it? I can't believe people are still listening. I mean, we're still listening. <laughs> That's true. Maybe all the listens are just you and I. Which would be fine. Critiquing ourselves. How's Boulder, Colorado? Boulder is great. Um, we're having a good summer here. It's a little hot. Come um, on. You know, is, you know. is it really a, a little hot you know, compared like, to your previous like, summer spent in Memphis, like 90, Tennessee? It's like 90 degrees, but you know, there's no humidity. Um, I'm enjoying biking around, exploring a little bit. Me and the kids have found a couple parks that are within walking distance of the house. So Fantastic. We've been sort of taking nightly walks um, to the different playgrounds that exist. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Boulder's been pretty good. That sounds awesome. Yeah. What about you? I just returned from my Better Bike Share Conference plus European vacation. Right. The so Europe trip. I got back trip. just a few days ago. How are you feeling? I feel great. I think that, you know, jet lag is a myth. You just push on through and pretend it doesn't exist. All will be okay. I think it's going to come back to get you at some point. <laughs> Maybe someday in my life. Right now, I feel very confident. Yeah. How um, was Europe? Europe was fantastic. Croatia is somewhere everyone should go. It was so beautiful. I had no expectations for yeah. Croatia. It was kind of like friends were like, hey, do you want to go? And I was like, yes. And then I found myself there. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Like the clearest, bluest, greenest, crazy water, great beach towns. I did a bike tour outside of Dubrovnik, Croatia, where we got to bike through kind of um, a a bunch of small villages and did some mountain biking and also connected that mountain biking with vineyards and, you know, special Croatian grapes that are only grown in that region that then turns into delicious wine. So it was a fantastic once in a lifetime kind of trip. Were you around in Croatia when the national team was playing in the Euros? Yes. How was that? It was exciting. Euro Cup was everywhere. Yeah, because Croatia made it uh, past the group stage, and I think they eventually lost to Portugal. That is correct. And Portugal is playing in the final. Um, so Croatia did pretty well. Yeah, it was fun. So yeah, like we started the trip in Venice and then did you know some places in Croatia and then ended up in Sarajevo and another place in Bosnia, but it was really exciting to be there during the Euro Cup. I mean, it was on every TV and everyone, you know, was gathered around. I really, while I don't know a ton about soccer, I love watching people watch soccer because you think people sit closer to each other and people (laughs) are interacting with each other potentially more than other sports. So there was a lot of cool energy in the air. I had no idea who was winning or losing, but it felt felt very exciting. <laughs> well, cool. Cool. That's, yeah. a, that's really nice. How was biking uh, in, in Croatia and it was, Italy? It was beautiful. I didn't do any biking in Venice. Okay. I didn't see a bike in Venice. I'm not sure actually if bikes are allowed <laughs> on the island. Maybe like water bikes, paddle bikes. Yes. <laughs> but Split, which was another beach town, had a, had a really good amount of bike, bikers in the city center who mm-hmm. looked like tourists and also you know people that live in the city that were getting around by bike and then the bike tour kind of outside of Dubrovnik 
was just gorgeous and fantastic and a great kind of combination of road biking and then off-road mountain biking. And then Sarajevo actually has bike share. They have next bike, mm. which is a smart bike program, but I was unable to locate any of the bikes, but I did see ads for them. Why, why weren't you able to locate them? I couldn't, I just wasn't able to find the time or the uh. Wi-Fi to <laughs> um, do a ton of research on where they were located, but they existed within Sarajevo. Excellent. How yeah. was the Better Bike Share Conference? By, by all accounts, um, from what I saw on Twitter and Facebook and heard from some coworkers, it was kind of an amazing conversation. It was special. It was really amazing. It was, you know, a bunch of advocates who care a lot about social justice mm-hmm. in general and care a lot about equity in general and really kind of having larger conversations and then also kind of some more micro conversations about how it affects our work in you know, bike advocacy and the the bike programs that we all are are participating in in our city. So I really enjoyed the conference. There's just some crazy, crazy smart, brave, awesome folks that that spoke and, and shared their stories at the conference. And I got to meet and nerd out with a bunch of great new bike share nerds. So it was a overall fantastic conference. People for Bikes and Better Bike Share Partnership did a great job. And Philadelphia was a fantastic host. Awesome. Did you also catch up with some of the past Bike Nerd podcast interview people? I did, which was amazing to meet these people that we already have a connection with via the podcast in person and catch up on projects. And I saw Cynthia, I saw Anna Ray and some other folks. And it was it was awesome to like catch an eye contact across the room and be like, I've Skyped with you. <laughs> now awesome. I can like actually shake your hand yes. and cheers you with wine. It's fantastic. That's going to be great. Yeah. yeah, we also did a, a great kind of bike tour on the Bike Share Bikes through Philadelphia that was really, really interesting and get to see some of how they're using art with their bike share stations, uh, which I really enjoyed because I really love the art piece as connecting to, to biking. So it was a great trip. It was a world. I mean, it's crazy. You know, I went from Philadelphia on this trip. So Philadelphia feels like forever ago. So I need to look back through my notes and, and re-download myself yeah. on all the cool things I learned. Now you're back at the grind. Yes. Oh, man. All right. Hey, well, on this episode, we've got uh, Darren Fluchet, uh, formerly of the League of American Bicyclists. Now he's working as a, a planner with the Tool Design Group, uh, a planning and engineering consulting firm um, out of Silver Spring, Maryland. And, you know, I've known Darren for, for a really long time, and I always enjoy having a conversation with him. And I, and I found him to be really engaging uh, on the podcast. Agreed. Let's do this thing. All right, let's hit it. Expreken Bisken Deutsch? <laughs> um, that's my wife. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Kyle. Did you set me up to act no, like an idiot speaking no. German? Someone I oh don't know. Oh, that's awesome because <laughs> I am I am looking at German flashcards right now um, that I've been um, quizzing my wife on because she is taking German, and so I can. Um, they're actually really amazing flashcards that a friend of her gave them because Maura, my wife, used to do letterpress printing. Ooh. And so they're letterpressed <gasps> flashcards. That's the coolest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, they're really cool. And they're I think they must be old. Like there's no label on it, so there's there's no markings indicating where it's from or what it is, but um there's <laughs> words in the vocabulary like the devil. <laughs> um, and so I've been quizzing her on sentences like there are many devils in the mountaintops. <laughs> uh, Beware. Yeah. Um, and like some of the, um, like some of the English work, like the translations feel not modern. Like, so um, the, um, the word for mayor, I guess in German is, um, do you know it? It's like Margot Burger or something. And then on the English side, it was like, this word means mayor or, Margot Burger, <laughs> whatever as if, that is. Like as if we use that in English, and like that's the that's the helpful translation. Yeah, you're like, oh, now I know what it. Means. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, going, I'm so, going to vote for the Margot Burger today. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. were you recently in Germany? Mm-hmm. What were you doing there? Um, we were on our honeymoon. Actually, Ooh, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. We on delayed. We we got married a year ago. We got married in July and um, delayed the honeymoon until I think March. Um, I've never been married, but I think that that's a good idea. 
Yeah, you don't want to plan a honeymoon while you're planning a wedding. Yeah, it right? feels like a lot. Yeah. You build up all this stress. Everyone I know had like huge fights on their honeymoons that happened immediately after their yeah. wedding. Because like, yeah. all, it's so stressful. I speak yeah. this as someone who is not married, but I can talk about whatever I want. I have a podcast. <laughs> huh, Carrie and I, Carrie and I did not fight on our honeymoon. We had a great time. Well, aren't well, you perfect? <laughs> Maybe so. Uh, we, but we actually, we actually went on a honeymoon to Disney World because Carrie had never been at that point um, and she wanted to go so we went there for like four days and, and then like the rest of the week we actually flew and went to another friend's wedding so we we spent part of our honeymoon vacationing in, in Montana but we were actually there to attend a, a friend's wedding it's a good friend move did you go to Epcot and visit Germany absolutely oh yes. nice now we all have German connections. <laughs> Darren, what, what was it like over in Germany? Because I, I haven't talked to you since uh, since your trip. Is that true? Um, yeah, it was it was great. I mean, one nice thing about being married to someone who's also kind of like an urbanist, um, biking and walking, like a transportation nerd, is that we um, specifically plan the honeymoon around the most multimodal places <laughs> in Germany. Yeah. Um, and so... Freiburg, Germany is it's kind of a college city and mm-hmm. it's it's well known to be not the bikiest city in Germany but the most multimodal. So it's got streetcar, it's got a lot of roads that are pedestrian priority roads. So cars can go on them but they basically have to go walking speed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that pretty much eliminates car traffic except for local deliveries and things like that. Um it's just a really amazing city. Uh Mora did what I have been calling a pre-honeymoon. She went by herself 2 weeks in advance and studied German for two weeks in Freiburg. <laughs> so by the time I got there, she was like, let me show you my favorite places. Yeah. Um, That's great. Yeah. And like, you got to take a picture of this road, this boulevard. It's got streetcar in the middle and it's got permeable parking surfaces and it's got bike racks. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, let's go. <laughs> well, look at the paint. Look at the paint that they use. Do you think yeah. we can get this in the U S yeah. 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 So that was our honeymoon. Um, and then we also went to Munich. I love uh, Munich. Munich's my yeah. favorite city in germany awesome yeah i really liked it too i i feel like the germans we met were like why did you not go to berlin (laughs) berlin is much cooler than munich you do a very good german accent (laughs) that was a direct quote that's why (laughs) (laughs) um well hi sir i've been listening to you for um not all the weeks, but many of the weeks. Uh, so I feel like I know you, but yes. I don't think we've actually met before. We have not met before, but this counts. So it's great yeah. to meet. Thank you <laughs> for taking time to chat. Oh my God, I'm so excited about it. So what do you do, Darren? So I am senior planner at Tool Design Group, which is a, a bicycle and pedestrian planning and design and landscape architecture firm. It's in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is in, right near D.C., but we have offices. I think we now have 10 offices all over the country. So um, all of the cool bikey places except for Memphis. Uh, so uh, Madison and um, Seattle and Portland and Boston. And um, we've got one in South Carolina. Uh, and then we have um, individual folks. Uh, we, we have a small California office that we're just opening, just starting. Um, and uh, we have one person who works out of uh, Orlando, Florida. Darren, you just joined Tool, correct? Yes, I started in um, last April, so I've been there a year. That's great. And how's it been going so far? It's been great. Yeah, I think it, it's. I'm also really interested to hear about your transition, Kyle, because yeah, yeah. I think we've we've sort of we've had both had interesting uh, <laughs> transitions, and and I think the, the job that you're doing now is more similar to the job that I was doing. Um, and I'm not sure that being a planner, maybe maybe the job I'm doing now is more similar to the job that you, that you just left in, in Memphis. I think there's some interesting parallels there. But what were you I'm, doing before? Um, I was policy director at the League of American Bicyclists. Okay. So I work with Kyle a lot, uh, as Kyle is one of our kind of local experts to try and help explain to other folks how decisions get made at the local level and how to navigate those decisions. So uh, we talked a lot about funding. Um, how things get paid for and what how cities prioritize projects and how you can set your project up as an advocate or work with your city to set your project up to be successful or how to reform the the funding process 
um, by advocating for different and better prioritization methods, kind of trying to play the inside game a little bit um, on the policy thing. And then, and then I also spent a lot of time just writing and and talking and, and working with um, advocates uh, all over the country to um, support them with kind of technical assistance and and just sort of be a sounding board for the the issues that they were running into and sharing other people's experiences across the country and connecting people and that kind of thing. So how is your role different now? Are you kind of now implementing the ideas that advocates have? Is that Yeah. Yeah. When I was at the league, um, I always thought that our job was, was if we were successful, we would create a lot of work for bike ped consultants. Um, <laughs> so while I felt a little little conflicted going to the private sector, I felt like, no, this is the thing that we've been working for all this time. Uh, if we're doing our jobs as advocates, then cities will need to hire more and more engineers and, and planners. Uh, so for, for specifically bike ped stuff. So um, now, now I'm on that side of it. And a lot of the work we do is doing master plans for uh, pedestrian and bicycle networks or I, because of my, um, sort of unique background where I, I don't have a planning degree, I have a policy degree. I ended up doing a lot of writing for um, just sort of best practice stuff. Like what are cities doing to, um, or w- what is the flexibility that engineers have to not follow um, the maximum lane widths in, in the Ashto green book? Like, can they do other things? And we know that they can. So Darren summarized them and explained to people how, um, these things can can work differently. So it's fun. I don't know. I as a bike nerd, I find that stuff really exciting and interesting. So Sarah, Darren, and I, I'm, Darren, I, I never told you this story, Darren. So maybe this this will be new for you as well. But the the first time that I ever met Darren, uh, we didn't actually meet. Um, <laughs> here's the story. I'm watching a federal highway webinar, right? And they're like they're announcing some new program. And uh, this young buck with glasses on, dressed real sharply, walks up to the microphone and he introduces himself as Darren Fluchet of the League of American Bicyclists. And he asked a question about bike ped. And that was the first time that I had ever actually seen Darren, like in like a physical capacity. Yeah. Like you, you, I would sort of see Darren's name come across on things, but it didn't mean anything until that webinar. So uh, that's the first place I ever actually met you. Do you Darren. remember the question that he asked? No, I don't remember what it was about, oh. but I just remember like, oh, that's Mr. Fluche right there. There he is. <laughs> Mr. Fluche. <laughs> when oh, did no. you all meet? Do you remember the moment you met in person? Like when you shook hands? I think I do. And Darren, you can tell me if this is the wrong story because this is – Kyle's not strong. No, no. The fact the fact that I remember any story is really, really uh, sort of amazing here. But uh, well, I'm I'm really curious what you're going to say because I'm not sure what the answer is. Yeah. Here, well, just go with me on it then. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, Long Beach, California. We okay. were at the Pro Walk Pro Bike Conference. We went bowling together. Huh. Do you remember bowling? In Long Beach. Yeah. Well, I, okay, so I was definitely at the conference. Yeah. So <laughs> we were staying on the we were Check. staying on the, the boat. Um, there was a, there I was a night. Remember it was bowling? Like, it was like you and I and Bill Nesper and Andy oh. Clark. Oh yeah, and uh, Michael Colville yeah, yeah. Anderson. And oh he, yeah, and he cleaned the Michael Colville Anderson cleaned the deck with us um, in bowling. <laughs> that, that's what I remember. Okay, yeah. All right, all right. That that was yeah. the first time. Let's, I think yeah, so. That's, that's Let's plausible. Go. Let's go with it. I'll go with it. Okay. <laughs> Done. How's that sound? Yeah, as, as we like to say on the podcast, it's on the record now. So. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, wait, we're, are we on the record? Yeah. No. Are we being recorded? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How else do you think it becomes a podcast? <laughs> I thought we were going to do sound check for 20 minutes. <laughs> No. Yeah. no, we're just warming you up. This is just <laughs> part of the deal. Now this is real. Oh. But Sarah, Darren has also been to Memphis. Uh, he was a part of uh, a team of worldwide renowned experts that came to Memphis for the, for the second Tennessee Bicycle Summit. Uh, he even got to stay at Wagon Shoots Manor. Ooh. Uh, yes. While he was there. Um. 
he also got to we we went down to revolutions and had like a beer party that night i mean it was a whole like bicycle ordeal um, so what year was this uh, who knows what first, what did you <laughs> yeah. think about Aaron? What, what did I th- oh memphis was was great i mean i feel like i remember my my overriding impression was wow these guys have a lot of right away to work with <laughs> <laughs> these roads are really wide yeah um but we had a lot of fun um it was it was good we went to the i think i think kyle it was the broad street where the where the makeover had been done yeah, the, yeah. the better block um because i remember seeing that there's all these places that are just sort of um touch points for all sort of examples and research like can it be done or what's a good example of where people have done a pop-up project and it's changed the neighborhood and it's like well broad street memphis and so being there it's like awesome i gotta take i gotta take as many pictures as i possibly can because i always talk about this place and i've never been there so like um there's a there's a trail in indianapolis that's the uh that's the same way it's like that's that's the trail where the the statistic where your house improves in value the closer you get to the uh, to the trail and I went to that trail and I was riding on it I was like this is amazing I'm at the source of this data point um, so being in Memphis was a little bit that way we've been talking about uh, Memphis and all the work that you all have been doing down there for a long time it was great to see it and then of course staying at, at the Wagon Shoots Manor which I guess is that not is it, is there a historical plaque in front of it now no actually- it's in the works. I actually have a uh, like a slate plaque that my parents bought for me that has Wagon Shoots Manor like painted on it, and I actually just unpacked it from a box this morning. So now there's a new Wagon Shoots yeah. Manor. Yeah, we're just moving it. We're just moving it west. You know what's interesting, Sarah, is when 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 Darren was sort of taking his first steps onto Broad Avenue, you were probably working over there, and you probably didn't even know Darren was was right there next to you. I didn't. I had no idea. I didn't know a lot of people. I mean, you were so close. You were so close to greatness. Yeah, so close without even knowing it. (laughs) So yes, Darren. So I did some implementation of placemaking as well as some fundraising for the Hamp Line, the two-way protected bike lane that'll connect Overton Park and Shelby Farms. Awesome. So Broad Avenue has a, a similar, very strong place in my art. That's great. Yeah, that's going to be a huge project, right? I mean, an important project. Yes. It's going to be great once it's complete. Awesome. So what are other touch points that you see across the country that, that as like a best practice on kind of urbanism and placemaking and walking and biking? Um, well, let me think. Um, I mean, I think it, it, not to dwell on Indianapolis, but the, the cultural trail is, is yeah. a huge high profile project. Oh, my gosh. Yes, I dream about it. Yeah, right. The um I think the protected intersections that are beginning to happen in Salt Lake and there's 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 a handful of emerging ones. Those are good those are those sort of those touch points that you just talk about it can be done. This is the next frontier of of what our streets can look like. I think some of the big um open streets events like Ciclavia in mm-hmm. LA, um and and all the cities that are doing a really good high profile open streets events those are the kind of things that i think about is as the, the things that you always come back to and use as examples and try and share with folks the the um the kind of statewide funding uh advocacy they've been successful in in delaware um is as a state that surprised a lot of people as a as a state that's sort of on the um the edge of the the spear or whatever the, the analogy is uh, for, for bike inf- investments. Um, it's an example I always come back to the work that uh, James Wilson is doing in bike Delaware. So what can you speak more to that? Um, so they, I don't know what's going on. In Delaware. Yeah. So they passed, this was a great ex- example of what advocates can do to, to lead the conversation on, on infrastructure funding. Uh, they passed, Bike Delaware worked with Nemours uh, Health Partners and um, a bunch of other groups who were sort of a little bit more well connected in the state assembly at that time. This was a couple of years ago, five six years ago, and um, they all worked together uh, with some kind of bipartisan group of legislators to figure out what would be a way to put 
Delaware on the map uh, with specifically their trail network. Uh, and so they passed a bill called Walkable, Bikeable Delaware, where they put walking first because that was universal, biking second. Um, and the uh, the thing that they actually originally got passed uh, had gotten negotiated down to um, not a commitment of funding because DOT was actually uncomfortable with, with transportation funding getting filtered through the state assembly in that way. And so the resolution that they passed was was just a statement of support from the assembly that, yes, we believe in investing um, uh, funds in bicycle and walking. And you, uh, DOT, and you, um, the appropriators, should commit um I don't know. I think the initial dollar was like $5 million or something, which in Delaware is a significant amount. Um, and then what happened was year after year, the state would appropriate uh, between 10, 12, 13, 14, $15 million to uh, this walkable, bikeable Delaware uh, network of, of paths across the state. Delaware is not a huge state. So you can sort of um, achieve sort of big statewide things with that kind of investment. And, um, and it was one of those things where, after a while, the problem was not getting the money. It was spending the money fast enough so that you could justify the appropriation the next year. Mm. Um, and so the the network's not yet in place, but the but um, a lot of things are starting to happen. And they're one of the states that actually has you know money to to invest in in biking and walking. And it all came from this idea um, that the walking biking advocates and some of the health folks, this kind of coalition, um, uh, initiated. And um, so it was exciting to see. Uh, to see that happen. It was kind of what we want to see all over the place. You should get them to tell that story better than I can, but yeah, we'll get, we'll get James on the podcast for sure. I think that's, I think that's a great idea. Cool. Um, so, so Darren, in your, in your time, you know, sort of with the league and being able to sort of go around the country and sort of see as, I would say I would suggest that a lot of the work that you were doing was sort of informing new advocates or first-time advocates um, in a lot of the sort of the more complex, maybe maybe not new, maybe but maybe people who didn't understand sort of the complexities of federal policy and transportation funding. You know how I'd, I'm just curious to know, sort of like looking back on that experience. Um, you know, is it is it necessary for our sort of systems to be that complicated that, that we have to have people that, that we have to have people like you traveling the country sort of talking with people about that. <laughs> not, not that you did a bad job or I, I don't want you to, I didn't want you to do that job. I just, I'm just curious to know, you know, from a, like from a person who sort of was doing that day in and day out um, in the things that I think that we deal with now, nowadays um, mostly because of the good work that you and Bridget did in helping sort of raise the bar in education in, in that federal space is that we're, we're now sort of seeing people that are much more engaged um, and much more knowledgeable with within sort of federal policy but there still seems to be sort of you know this this pull by bureaucracy just in general right to sort of confiscate things um that make that make things harder than, than than they should be for the normal person you know do you do you think yeah. is, that, is that a necessary part of the the process i think that well no i don't, I don't not necessary at all it's, <laughs> it's um but but i do think that there is a sense that um the the folks that are making transportation decisions are the experts and it's not really for the general public to know what the CMAC program is, which is a funding program that goes towards projects that mitigate congestion and, and improve air quality. Um, but there's kind of this idea that the programs were not built for a public audience. They were built for the practitioners who are working for the city and more so for the state um, to, to be the ones to know about these sources and to, and to program projects as they see fit so the whole system is not set up for a public audience and so that was sort of the model of the the advocacy advance program that we mm -hmm. were working on which is to say let's actually open this thing up sh shine a flashlight on how these things work and see what happens when people who are committed to um, maybe thinking about things a little bit differently understand the terminology and so when they sit down with the meeting with an engineer or a elected official and they say cmac blah 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 
um, or minimum standards or, you know, um, curb radii that the advocate on the other side doesn't just say, oh, man, this this room is not for me, that I actually can participate in this conversation. Um, and so yeah, I think it was a very self-conscious um, challenge to the idea that that only the anointed practitioners can speak this language and can be part of these conversations. And what happens if we spend a couple of years actually sort of studying up on it, learning about it and and bringing more people into that conversation. Um, I don't know if that's the most effective advocacy route uh, out there um, because by the end of the, my tenure at the league, I thought, you know what? people, What people really need to know um, is that biking and walking need to be a priority in our communities and that the people that deal with the funding mechanisms need to reflect that in their decision-making rather than I as an advocate need to know the um, – the selection criteria and and all that stuff. I, th- I think there's a there's a level of, of wonkiness that's actually fine to be done by people like Kyle Wagenschutz at the city of Memphis, um, and they don't necessarily need me to to be in that conversation. But what Kyle Wagenschutz at the city of Memphis needs to know is that the mayor wants him to program a whole lot of bike and ped uh, projects because the people are asking for it and they're sort of demanding it of of the system. So. Yeah, it's an interesting question that you that you ask, and and um, that was a sort of a very wonky inside game that we decided to uh, to try and take on, and I, I think it was successful. I think a lot of people really like to understand the rules of the game that they're that they're trying to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said something interesting, which was that we're talking to sort of some of the newer folks, and that was something that when we when we would work with advocates from larger cities, they would say, "Well, we don't we don't really need you. We already know how the game." Uh, works and it was really fun to go to Los Angeles last year, uh, my last project with Bridget and the FC Advance team, um, and work with a, a really really great and diverse group of community stakeholders because they have this ballot initiative that that they're just now deciding um, how much money is going to be involved and what the projects are going to go to, and um, so they were we we went and did a workshop and brought people together to sort of figure out how to be a voice for more progressive spending of, of transportation dollars in Los Angeles County, which is enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it was really fun and it was cool to be, uh, to be there with, with people who were actually super sophisticated and, um, and really engaged. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, I think our, the people that we work with the most were, were from smaller, uh, smaller cities, um, and advocates who were maybe new or maybe just didn't have huge staff, uh, to dedicate to um, working with city officials and spend as much time on, on this issue. And I think everybody needs like a sounding board and somebody to bounce ideas off of and just say, is this, is this right? My, 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 uh, my state engineer told me this and it just doesn't sound right. Is this what happens in other places? What, what should we be doing? Um, and so that's kind of the, the role that we played. Uh, but you mentioned Bridget. Bridget O'Keene uh, is an amazing bike advocate, um, who has, has kind of gone on to do other things right now, but uh, she and I always talked about, um, Kyle, you and Anthony Syracuse, uh, because I think one of the things that we always talked about was this idea of having like a partner and yeah. um, having somebody else like a Batman and Robin kind of <laughs> um, where, <Yes! laughs> um, where you just kind of had like, I think in this work that we do, you need somebody who's like sort of totally on your team, totally with you. Uh, in the case of Bridget, somebody that like had strengths where you had weaknesses. So she was super, super on top of every detail and I could just go out and blather about policy. And it was just, we just worked so well. Um, and Kyle and Anthony and Scott and Iraq and Pittsburgh and, uh, Margot Pedroso and Karen Whitaker. Karen's a lobbyist for the league, and Margot's the lobbyist for Safe Routes School National Partnership. And the two of them are just a force to be reckoned with together. <laughs> um, so it's really fun to think about that this, this idea of like how pairs of people or partners can really like kind of kick butt. And I think uh, that's that's something I think everybody everybody out there listening should find find somebody to like march into battle with. <laughs> a buddy system <laughs> yeah totally but no now i am actually while we're talking pulling up the advocacy advance website and doing digging d- deeper in i'm currently applying for a cmat grant and i'm ah. a planner and i don't have an engineering background and it's really overwhelming and i luckily have partners in memphis and out of memphis is kyle and other partners that are 
this is a CMAC regarding to an expansion for our yet to be launched bike share program. Yeah. But anyway, it's like really it's it's overwhelming. I mean, I have a lot of tools, but I don't necessarily have the tools to to successfully fill out a federal um, or state kind of grant process. And I love that, you know, that's something that has been thought about, that there's advocates that, that want to access that funding, but yeah. don't have that those tools and don't know the language and there's code speak involved mm-hmm. and, and how to kind of navigate through that. So now I know what I'm going to be doing the rest of my day. Awesome. Just, well, <laughs> call me back. We'll walk through I will. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's, I think it's a really interesting um, sort of sentiment, Darren. And I would say that over the time that, that you and Bridget were sort of doing advocacy advance, I would say that the general level of knowledge and information about federal funding and for transportation and bike ped in general funding and policy rose immensely. I mean, I, I can remember sort of being in this work a long time ago, right? And nobody knew what CMAC was and nobody mm. knew what transportation enhancements were. Mm. Um, but I would say that, you know, the, the job, you know, job well done to, to you and Bridget. I, I think those are sort of fairly common, um, I think it's very sort of fairly common language nowadays. People have a pretty basic understanding of the workings, you know, regardless of how often the the policy and the the legislation is changing in Congress. Um, people have a general understanding of how those programs work now, and I think sort of the the cumulative effect of that is we are seeing right that those funds are finally being used. They're rolling out in mm-hmm. communities. Communities are using those funds more uh, more strategically now than they ever have been before. But but it raises this question that that I wanted to pose to you. Um, my apologies for not uh, you know bringing it up before, but I just thought about it a few minutes ago while you were talking. Uh, but it, it it poses this question right that I think probably impacts advocates you know from from any kind of sort of subject matter, you know, whether it's transportation or biking and walking. But advocates in general, you know, are always sort of after something, right? They're, they're looking for something to be different uh, within a system or within a policy, uh, you know, and we're, you know, as bike advocates, you know, looking for things to be better for biking, both from a funding perspective, but also from an implementation and completeness perspective. And a lot of the work that I think has been accomplished over the last, you know, decade or so has been about advocates learning how to work within the system as it exists today, right? Like, so we have, we, I think we could, we could all sort of collectively talk about the, the failed system of transportation that we have. And I think it's pretty evident in the congestion in our cities and sort of, you know, the, the ineffectiveness of public transportation to reach people that actually need it or make it so unaffordable that they can't actually use it. Uh, but we're we're sort of like, we're sort of taking this sort of flawed system and learning better ways, you know, to sort of like trick the system to work for us, right? So we're we're learning about the CMAC program, which many communities use to widen highways over the span of you know over, over a decade, or add new lanes to highways, or do some of the other kind of weird projects that didn't really help anybody out transportation wise. Change not- single timing so that they can move yeah. more cars. Through yeah. The- yeah. Order. Yeah. And so we're, we're taking this system that sort of allowed that to happen for, you know, for years and years and years. And we're learning how to tweak it in such a way that we're now getting better results for biking and walking. But on the other hand, is, isn't there also this argument that, that advocates should be advocating for, for a better system just in general, rather than trying to work within a flawed system and uh, on, on its own? Yeah, I, I, yes. I think so. I, I've been largely convinced um, by the Strong Towns crew. I don't know if you've been following them. They're they're absolutely on fire um, right now with, yeah. with with blog posts and podcasts and all sorts. It feels like every channel imaginable. Um, but um, I think it's Chuck, right? Yeah, um, Chuck Chuck Marone. Yeah, his his sort of he identified that he was the first person that I saw sort of identified this. Uh, this issue, which basically, in at least in the the federal policy, um, we we made a deal basically with the with the highway guys, and we said we will support you pushing for a uh, bigger highway bill if we get a piece of it. And so that's where you get, um, you know, we we had some years during the stimulus where we were spending we had a, a billion dollars of federal uh, funds going filtering through the states uh, to bicycle and pedestrian 
projects through the transportation enhancements program and other things like that. Um, and so for for 20 years, we got for the first time significant federal investment um, starting in 92. Um, and uh, that was a deal that we made. You know, essentially, um, if the money is coming from the from the feds, which back then it was, uh, and this money is going to transportation projects, and that's where the money is, you go where the money is, and you try and get a piece of it. Um, I think uh, what what some folks are beginning to say is, you know, maybe uh, that actually led it uh, led to a lot of trails, but it also led to a lot of mammoth roads, um, and that are you know supporting sprawl and and making our communities. Um, more and more auto dependent uh and so maybe there is a different paradigm that we should be working towards and maybe smaller is better and maybe as budgets get more um constricted uh then we'll start to figure out that you get more bang for your buck especially in urban areas uh for building bicycle and pedestrian facilities to help people be safe um in in denser urban areas than um spending millions of dollars on roads uh, to get people to move farther and faster. And just, you know, I just saw another statistic the other day. There's the famous Portland example of um, Roger Geller figured out that a couple years ago, uh, when their network was a little smaller than it is now, uh, they had paid for their entire bicycling network, Portland's famous bicycling network, for the same cost of one mile of urban freeway, right? And admittedly, that's mm-hmm. an expensive, that example, that one mile is is you know, an urban freeway is the more most expensive thing you can build, but one mile. Uh, and then for the cost of that, they paid for their entire bike network. Uh, and I just saw another city's example of that the other day. It was 1.3 miles of a, of a, of a highway was going to pay for the entire bike plan over, over the next 20 years, same cost. So, um, you know, really, really starting to question how we spend all of our transportation dollars uh, in an era where um, that, you know, tax dollars are not uh, increasing and and we're not flush with cash uh, i think is a really important question to ask so good job asking the question i, I don't i don't know what the answer is um, I, I i don't know how you go about um you know calling for a complete paradigm shift except to say one of the things that we've been getting better at is a bicycling advocacy movement i think and we need to keep doing is building our partnerships and um working with more people who um, understand that it's not just about getting more people on bikes, but it's about a total shift in in the way we travel, and it's a shift in, in the way we think about building health healthy communities. So the health um, side of things, and the environmental side of things, and the um, the affordable transportation side of things, affordable housing. We need to be working with all these partners uh, to build a coalition, and then maybe the idea of changing the entire transportation funding paradigm is not so crazy. I think that was a pretty good answer for not uh, not giving it to you in advance. <laughs> <laughs> I I wonder if um, you know to what degree local advocacy groups um, have a, have a role to sort of influence that. You know, Sarah and I have spent some time on the podcast talking um, a little bit about this this shift um, in advocacy to a much more local focus. And, and I, th- and I think federal policy followed that, to, you know, to a large extent. Mm-hmm. To, well, we, I think we could have a discussion about which one, which one moved first, right? Maybe they moved in tandem, but I, but I think there's been a, a, a big sort of uprise, right? In the, the level of sophistication and the level of success at the local level that's beginning to sort of ripple up to the, to the national level, right? We're, we're seeing, like you mentioned, these sort of new, these new ballot initiatives across the country mm-hmm, mm-hmm, in Delaware mm-hmm. and LA and in other places as well. Um, the East, but we had a, you know, the East Bay, um, mm-hmm, you know, one, you know, a billion dollars for bikes, right? That's, that's, it's a sort of a, you know, sort of mind blowing in some ways, yeah. but, but we're sort of beginning to see sort of, you know, I think the maturation of, really local advocacy efforts take on really important roles in this. And I, I wonder if, you know, if, if you saw that as you were sort of leaving the league, you know, were you also witnessing sort of the, the growth and the success of local advocacy begin to have sort of an impact of what was happening sort of nationally? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, so a couple of things on that. I mean, one, one is our model was always based on local advocacy. Um, so that's specifically speaking about the advocacy advance model. Um, and 
which was which was funded sort of by the same mechanism, the SRAM Cycling Fund that supported the Green Lane Project. Mm-hmm. And it was it was based on this idea that even if you're dealing with federal money, that the decisions are local, or at least they're statewide. Yeah. Um, and so if you're going to get good outcomes, you need to um, have folks at the state and local level asking for them and so and 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 so that's that was the whole basis so um the whole point of my job was to support local advocates not to be the advocacy and not to replace local advocacy with with sort of some national federal voice it was to it was totally support and to be that sort of sounding board and and, um and partner for Mm -hmm, the local mm -hmm. folks so that that's one thing but then for sure we saw the shift um really clearly uh and and that's why we and I think I credit Bridget O'Keen for for figuring out that the, out of the last ten conversations that we've had with people, like five of them were about ballot initiatives. Like maybe this is a thing. Maybe we should be talking about that more. Um, mm-hmm. And and so we were able to pivot um, and and do that. Uh, but but I also don't think it's new that that the local folks have been amazing. And um, I mean everything that we know, we learn from from lessons that were being generated by, by folks, um, at large and small bike advocacy organizations. Um, you know, every, like everything we, we talked about was a lesson from somebody else. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, so I don't think it's new to have really, really robust and great local advocacy. My first experience with advocacy was when I was living in Brooklyn and transportation alternatives was, um, you know, tabling at every event. And I had my, um, uh, one less car t-shirt, which I always thought should be one car fewer. Um, <laughs> but Transportation Alternatives was the face of uh, not just biking advocacy, but transit um, and, and and walking uh, in New York. And they were, that's how I, I saw, that's basically where I learned that bike advocacy was a thing. Um, and uh, so, yeah, but anyway, um, I do think that there's tremendous momentum at the local level. Uh, there's people just totally tearing it up and, and being amazing. Um, but there's also this parallel trend, which is mayors taking up the mantle and cities figuring out that um, that this is something that they want to do. Um, and so you have cities trying to figure out how um, cities that were all the momentum was always among the advocates. So this kind of this advocate city model where over time you had elected officials figuring out that this was important and starting pushing. And so you have places like New York where, as I mentioned, transitional terms have been building the movement for years. Uh, and then you have Jeanette Sedekan and, and Michael Bloomberg come in and say, we'll take it from here, guys. And and what, what do the local advocates do when the mayor is pushing for things that never even occurred to them? Yeah. Or uh, what also happened, which was, they hired your staff to be their transportation staff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, what does an what's an advocacy organization to do at that point when when the city is 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 plowing ahead? And, and I think the city was saying, we need you to get people to community meetings. We we already know what what we need. Uh, we need you to build help us build public support for that. And so, thinking about that shift from like um, sort of the call, we need to do better. We need to do better to we need to be community organizing people to get to local meetings um, is, has been a really fascinating shift to, to watch in some cities, not, not all, obviously. So Darren, I'm going to shift gears and shifting gears is a term I would like to stop saying, but I haven't figured out how to do it yet. I'm just going to put that out there is I'm really fascinated with your, the strangest job you've ever had. Yeah. So what was the strangest job you ever had? Um, so I um, worked for the Appalachian Mountain Club. This was right after I um, I graduated uh, from undergrad and um, had gone as a kid to the White Mountains. And the White Mountains have this hut system. And they, they're kind of these like almost luxury cabins where you, as a hiker, you go in, you hike and you get all dirty and you're working hard. Um, and then you get to this, they call it a hut, but it's really a cabin in the, in, on a mountain range. And there's a crew of folks, five kids, basically right out of college who cook all the meals, pack up all the food, uh, on their backs. What so kind all, of meals are you cooking? Um, a lot of, uh, I remember specifically that we use the, um, 
the uh, the Moosewood Cookbook. If you know that, it's a, like a yeah uh, a restaurant in Ithaca that's vegetarian. Yes. So I remember we we cooked I have a, the cookbook uh, in my kitchen. Yeah, it's great. And I remember we used their tomato sauce recipe. So we would cook like huge for sixty guests. We would cook these huge pots of. Um, pasta, or um, we we also did. It wasn't all vegetarian. I'm I'm a vegetarian, so that's the one I remember. Um, but <laughs> how um, big was the pot? Like you could put like a baby huge in the pot, like huge. Yeah, this is like industrial. These were these were um, ovens that had been helicoptered in and like dropped <laughs> off. Um, this was not. We didn't have to carry that the like the um, the the gasoline or anything <laughs> on our backs. But um, which strangely enough, there's like a t- there's that's where I would call my family. I would run. I put on my lightweight hiking boots and nothing, and, and like carry no pack, and run up Mount Washington and make a phone call. I remember calling my parents at one point from the top of Mount Washington, um, and I was in the best How shape long of my was life. The run? I mean, I mean, this is a couple miles, maybe so four just miles. Just to make a phone call? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed. I don't run unless something's chasing me. It's amazing. Well, yeah, this is this was a long time ago. <laughs> And so there was this like element where you like created a character for yourself. So explain yeah. there was sketches yeah. involved. Yeah. So every, every morning we had to um, communicate three things to the guests, which was um, fold your blanket the AMC way, which is like there's a specific triangular pattern that you had to fold your blanket in and then leave it at the foot of your, your bunk. Why? Um, why? Um, that was never explained, and it was just accepted <laughs> that, like, this is what you do. You fold your blanket, okay. you do it this way, and 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 that you come up with clever ways to explain to people how to do it. Uh, and the other two points you had we had to make every day was um, pack out your trash, because obviously if, if the guests didn't pack out the trash, we would have to pack it out. And then the last thing was tip your crew. So every morning we came up with a new way and there were some some set ones like there would be the newlywed game where the um the newlywed uh person uh, or what's the game with with the three people whose whose um whose backs are turned and and the contestant asks the three people a question and whichever like guy gives the best answer she chooses him what's oh, that game yeah. was it the, the dating uh, game. The dating. the dating game. Yeah. So like one of the classic sketches was like the the woman is asking the contestants like do they know how to fold a blanket the AMC way, and uh, the contestant that knew how to fold the blanket knew how to uh, pack out their trash and tip the crew would of course be like the guy you wanted to yeah. date. <laughs> um, and so um, there was often a lot of like dressing in drag and just sort of general like. Uh, you know, hijinks involved, and um, and so for those sketches, there was it was always every cabin had a um, like a treasure chest of costumes, and so uh, I remember I found this long black ponytail wig, and um, I decided that I was th- this was a day that the helicopter had like dropped off more fuel for the for the ovens for the um, and so um, I decided that I was Carl. And Carl had been dropped off by the helicopter. He was a helicopter pilot, but for some reason, his his co-pilot like left him. He couldn't understand <laughs> why. And um, but he but um, and so I adopted this voice for Carl. And and my friend Dave became Carl's girlfriend Tina. And um, and so we created this whole world around Carl. And Carl like um, did the sketch in the morning. And Carl. Had, took people's coffee order in evening and, and told people that it was like brownies for dessert or whatever. Um, and so it was like my pre- background in like improv. Like, do you, <laughs> did you have aspirations of acting at the time? Uh, n- not at the time. I had been a really bad, I, I just knew I was a bad actor in high school. I tried to, and I don't mean like a, a person of dubious character. I just mean, I was not a good actor. <laughs> oh, I was um, hoping you meant someone of dubious character. <laughs> Uh, and so I just remember, I remember in high school wanting to act and like wanting to be an actor. That was my, that was the thing that I wanted to do. And, um, not necessarily professionally, but I wanted to be really good at it. And I wanted to be the starring role in, in high school. And, uh, I just, just got these like mercy. I got cast like, as like, (laughs) you know, in Shakespeare, like guard number one. Yeah. And like, I was the guy that played like three roles which i thought was really cool must be must mean i was like really good because they wanted me for three <laughs> roles but like each role had two lines right um and so yeah i was you know i would 
uh, no, so I was not a good actor, but I, but you know, a bit of a ham. And so, um, was really excited to dive into that role. And then my, this is like still my proudest professional moments. The next day after Carl made his debut, um, this, this guy who sort of like resembled Carl, like he was like kind of, kind of a gruff guy, <laughs> um, found one of my coworkers and gave her a hundred dollar bill and said, this is for Carl. That's a, am- that's awesome. Was that the like, most money you ever made off of acting? Yes. Yes. <laughs> wow. You can say that's, that you were a paid when, actor at one time. That's when I turned professional. Have you heard of Mount LeConte? No. It's in it's in Tennessee, like East Tennessee, but it sounds really similar. It's like really nice lodges and you like pack things in and and camp. I'm not sure if they have developed such a sophisticated educational tool but <laughs> um but yeah it's like a very remote you can only access it you know by foot or helicopter it sounds really similar awesome yeah it sounds great that sounds like a great job how did you even like how did you end up working there well i had been there as this probably like a 10 year old and i was just in oh. awe of these adults like these people like you know by the time i was there i was like oh we're not adults like we're yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> not adults <laughs> but as as a kid, I was just like, these people are awesome. Like, wow, I got it. I have to do this. And and the f- the funny thing is, I actually ended up um, applying for the fall. There's like a fall shift, so there's like a summer shift, and all the college kids do that, and then they go to college, and there's still a month of the season left. And so it's a really competitive job, even though it sounds grueling and, and hard. Like every, basically every new England college kid wants it. So, you know, there are all these like Williams graduates or, or students. And, and so I, um, but I'm pretty sure I would not have gotten the job except I applied for kind of like the off season, like just like the, like the September season, um, when the college kids are back in college. And so I got, I, I got kind of talked my way into it. Um, but basically because I, I picked a time where there's less competition. Um, and, um, and it was actually, this is this is totally changing tone of this conversation, but it was it was the September 11 um, year, mm-hmm. uh, 2001, and so I remember being on my break. We worked 10 days on, and we had like four days off, and so I remember being in Boston because um, this is New Hampshire, so like everyone either just spends their four days off like hiking more, or um, or they go to Boston. So I remember being in Boston and and finding out that 9/11 had happened, and then getting like the next day going back to the middle wow. of the woods where there's like no telephone, no yeah. nothing, and there's people that have been in the woods for weeks or day, at least days, and um, are hearing about what happened mm. and just totally be- bewildered. And I remember we had like a, a candlelight vigil and tried to try to sort of be, you know, make some sense of it all. But yeah. I remember that was a crazy moment. Wow. I don't know how we follow yeah, that. I, mean, I don't know you how you transition change, from that. You, t- yeah. you did change the tone. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, everybody. Yeah. I'm looking for a question that's yeah. adequate to follow up, and I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about Kyle. Let's talk yeah, about Yeah, I love to talk about Kyle. Oh. He's my favorite topic. Okay. Let's talk about this transition to, to national advocacy. Don't yeah. you think the, ga- the game's not really happening at the national level anymore, Kyle? That's a good question. That I just asked a few minutes ago, um, but I, I would say I, I don't. I don't believe that. I, th- I think there's still yeah. a, a no, major role no. for what you guys are doing. No, I think I think there's a big role at the national level. I, th- I still feel like, you know, as many communities have been touched across the U.S. and North America in general, there's three times as many that haven't yet. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I think there's while while the level of sophistication has grown immensely at the local level there's still a lot of questions that are being asked and i think i think national groups um still have a role to play in helping to answer a lot of those questions i think the questions are changing right there there was there mm-hmm. was a, there was a time in an era when federal policy was so in flux and so tumultuous that we needed you know advocacy advance to really sort of you know bring all that together um, but now the questions that, w- that are being asked are, are much are, are in some ways more complicated because they're being asked the, at the local level. And all of those circumstances are so diverse and so different mm-hmm. um, that, uh, yeah. you know, it's 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 hard, I think, to sort of generalize now. And so now now I think that the role is, you know, for national groups as they move forward is figuring out what works and then and then trying to figure out 
how communities take what works and makes it and make those things work for them. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. So it's, so it's like, it's like, here's like a general theme about, about how we sort of make change, how we sort of impact policy, how we impact people. Uh, but that's, but it's not always going to work for you and your community this exact way. You cannot follow steps A through Z and come out, come out to the same exact end result in every single community. Maybe there's like 25 more steps for your community, or maybe there's 25 fewer steps for your community. It all kind of depends. And I think, I think what the role that nationals are sort of trying to fill right now is trying to figure out how do we sort of draw out these, these sort of common themes, these common strings that sort of, you know, bind, the, the North American experience altogether. But then how do you sort of empower locals to really sort of take those themes and make them their own um, and allow them to work in ways in their communities um, that are impactful for them um, and, and see good results for not just them, but all the people in their community. So, and, you know, I've only been here like a week, so I haven't figured, I haven't figured it all <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, how's it going? <laughs> uh, I'm not even sure like where the coffee pot is at this point um, <laughs> in the office, but uh, but, but yeah, no, I, I think I think the national um, advocacy movement still has a really strong, vital role to play here. I think it's just being redefined at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, for the record, I absolutely think that, and um, I think that both in terms of people at the local level really, really wanting. Those folks that have, they want to know who to talk to. They want to know who the other people doing similar work uh, are. And, and, and I think there's a role to connect people at, at the federal level. And I also mm-hmm. think, or national, I should say. Uh, and then I also think, you know, just sort of identifying what the trends are and what the things that folks might be thinking about. Um, and you, you identify those trends by working with people that are pioneering them locally, but then broadcasting them and, and putting a microphone to them. I think there's totally a role for that. Yeah, and and I think to sort of end on a serious note here, I and I haven't fully thought this out, but uh, I'd, I'd love to know what you think about it, Darren. I think it has to do with this trend towards sort of democratizing, you know, transportation decision making in our community. So we begin to think if we look at all of these trends, right? If we look at the growth and the power of local advocacy movements, and we look at sort of the decentralization of federal transportation spending, and we look at sort of, you know, locals holding ballot initiatives to sort of say, hey, we don't understand the CMAC program. We just, we don't need the CMAC program. We're going to we're gonna figure out how to do this ourselves with our own, you know, ballot initiatives in this area. And we look at sort of all this happening. We're, we're really, aren't we really seeing sort of the growth of, you know, sort of individuals in our communities beginning to, to sort of raise their voices and become a, a greater part of a public dis- policy discussion and decision-making process. And isn't, isn't that ultimately sort of, you know, sort of the, the democracy that we're really sort of be wanting to see um, as a nation? Yeah. <laughs> that was deep. That was deep, pal. Preach it. Yeah. I, I mean, I also think just along those lines, the other thing is, you know, bicycling tends to be local. Right. I mean, you, you, you have folks who, I mean, I love, you know, you and I, Kyle, both love Ginny Sullivan and adventure cycling and, and Jim Sayer. And, um, they do the U S bike route system, which is mm-hmm. great. And, and, and bicycle tourism across states, certainly, um, certainly not local necessarily regional. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the stuff we're arguing for are really local transportation decisions and, um, local transportation projects. And so mm-hmm. it, it makes complete sense that we, that we make those decisions at the local level and that we, um, which is where they happen anyway. But, um, and we also like find ways to like listen to communities that aren't ready for them. And so we take no for an answer sometimes. I think mm-hmm. that's really important. I don't, I don't think a top down approach to, um, any sort of decision-making necessarily is, is optimal, but certainly not one like bicycling where there's, there usually are different ways to build a network and you need to listen to the neighbors that want the network and uh, find ways to uh, build support for it, but do it in a way that's really responsive to local, local needs and, and desires. So I think it just makes complete sense that, that, um, that we do find ways to, to sort of make the conversation local and intimate. And because that's what biking is like, it's about the, the very simple on street connections that we're making uh, and so it's it's like it's actually a lot of fun to to think about it from a, like a block by block perspective which i get to do more of now cool darren let, let's end this what's the best uh, hip-hop album album out right now 
Oh God. Um, I mean, I think Chance. I have to go with Chance. All right. Chance three. Chance the rapper. Um, I think that's probably. I think he's he's kind of on top of his game right now. Okay. What do you think? What yeah. do you think? No, I'm 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 in full agreement with you. All right. Cool. Recommendation from Darren Fouché. Chance Pretty the rapper. Pretty here. Pretty here first. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, people Sarah, are like, oh, finally. Sarah, just to make you a little jealous. Darren, I don't like this. Darren, I don't want jealousy Darren's, in my life. Darren's coming to visit me in Boulder this week. Oh, Darren, are you attending Pro Walk, Pro Bike this year? Uh, I'm not. I'm oh. not. My ability to attend to attend conferences is greatly diminished in my new role. I'm sorry to say. Well, we um, may never but, meet then. Well, are you going to be in Mississippi for the Mississippi Bike Walk Summit? Is that a thing that you would you would venture to? I think Melody is fantastic. So if only just to see Melody, then yes. All right. Well, um, <laughs> you should you should do everything in your power to, okay. to make it there, and and right. um, maybe we could be. I, we will certainly meet one day. I have no doubt. Um, well, thanks for taking time. This was great, and I have no doubt that we will have you on again because I think there's a lot more for us to discuss. I, I am so game uh, to, to to come back anytime. It was a ton of fun. Awesome. And I I also I just I have to give a shout out to um to your guests uh, Jim and Julia Stefan. They were great. Their yes. chemistry was amazing. And I was uh, just like, yes. yeah. So I don't know why I decided to close on that note. But the podcast <laughs> the, because the podcast is so awesome and you guys are doing such a great job. Uh, well, thank talk, you. Talking to amazing people. The, the, the Steffens are, it's funny you say that. It shouldn't be funny, but I have had so many people comment on the Steffens episode that not only are they fantastic and have good chemistry, but I think their perspective on entrepreneurship and how it yeah. fits into bike culture is super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, please tell them that some random guy they don't know thought that <laughs> their episode was awesome. I will do it. No, right. the world famous Darren the Fouché world- <laughs> was really into their episode. <laughs> awesome. All right, guys. This was fun. Yeah, so fun. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Thanks, Darren. Bye. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye. The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of the Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OAM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoamnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at thebikenerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com.